Pushkin. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. I want to let you know that Rick has a new podcast called Tetragrammaton. After about four to five years of recording Broken Record, Rick decided he wanted to talk to more than just musicians. So on his new podcast, he'll be talking to actors, directors, wrestlers, business people, anyone that Rick finds interesting. So make sure to subscribe to Tetragrammaton wherever you listen to podcasts. George Clinton forever changed music with Parliament Funkadelic, whose theatrical sci-fi performance art has captivated audiences worldwide for over five decades and influenced a range of artists from Prince to the Chili Peppers to Dr. Dre. P-Funk's blend of psychedelic rock and deep, repetitive, unfolding funk grooves helped bridge the R&B and rock worlds in the 70s, along with acts like Sly and the Family Stone. Known for multiple characters like Dr. Funkenstein, George Clinton orchestrated multiple solo acts under the P-Funk umbrella, and by the 80s was charting with solo hits himself like Atomic Dog, all of which would lay the groundwork for hip-hop's classic G-Funk era and beyond. On today's episode, Rick Rubin talks to George Clinton on Zoom about the origins of the original vocal group, The Parliaments, and the time George was on a panel with James Brown and dared the godfather of funk and soul himself to do the splits 18 times. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. In true George Clinton fashion, he funked up his recording, but, you know, it's all good because we want the funk anyway. So here's Rick Rubin with George Clinton. It's a pleasure to see you, sir. Been a minute. Same here. Yeah. I love your hat, by the way. Oh, yeah. Now I have to keep my, my dome. You know, there was the hair before I got to keep the dome occupied <laughs> at all times. <laughs> I like it. I watched a video of you 
uh, from 19, either from 1969 or 1970. And everybody in the group had the best hats. <laughs> you weren't wearing a hat. Everybody else had a hat. You had a mohawk. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah I remember that. I always try to do something weird with the hair. <laughs> you know, I was a barber. I didn't know that. Tell me about your life before music. Okay, man. 1956, we started the group, okay? 13 years old. We started the group because of, you know, like Frankie Lyman and the teenagers, you know, why the fools fall in love. Doo-wop was the, the main music. Yeah. Doo-wop was the music in Newark, New Jersey. And so I started a group. And one of the first things you had to do in the group at, in those days was get a do. You know, your hair with the waves in it. I see. We couldn't go to the barber shop and get it done because it cost too much. So we learned to do each other's hair. So while we was learning to sing and do up, right up into 50, 1959, we was working in the barber shop, singing at the same time, rehearsing in the barber shop. The miracle, smoking the miracles come out, you know, the Motown thing come out. So that was our destination. From then on to be on Motown, singing doo-wop, and doing each other's hair, looking like the Temptations. We did exactly that from 59 to like 66. When we got our first hit record, I just want to testify. Incredible. In Detroit, I, you know, after working for Motown, you know, Joe Bet, most of that time, you know, as a writer, we weren't signed to, you know, we never got a record out on the label. We were signed to the label for a minute, but we didn't get a record out. But the competition, right down the street, Golden World for Motown, I got a job there and I recorded, I just want to testify. And that became a, the hit of Detroit, you know, and we were like the competition for a minute. But we immediately changed, I think, because it was too late by then, if the, the European invasion was happening. You know, and the Rolling Stone Beatles and Led Zeppelins and all of that was happening. So we realized then, because we had a real good backup band, which was like our little brothers, Eddie Hazel, Billy Nelson, Tiki Fullwood, Tyle Ross, and Bernie Worrell. But those were the first ones that we did for years. They were called Funkadelic. But before Funkadelic, it was the Parliaments, and it started in New Jersey. Right. Because I think of you as Detroit. I don't think of you as New Jersey. When did you make the move? No, it started in New Jersey, in the barbershop in New Jersey, while we was doing these shows. That's where it started at. Let's talk more about doo-wop. Okay. I never made the connection because you said you did each other's hair. Is the name doo-wop, does it come from the do? Is that why it's called doo-wop? No, it was a doo-doo-wop, doo-doo-doo-wop. I see. But just so it happened, the do's, you know, getting your hair done was what it was called, getting the do. So it did come close to that, but you related it together. That was the style. Remember Nat King Cole and the, the yeah. whole, his whole vibe, Sugar Ray Robinson, those yes. waves, that was the current style back in those days. So you, if you're going to go into the Apollo, you better have, it, have to have a do. You know, everybody was cool, you know, on Friday evening, you got that do, your head was laid, and that was the, the style. When we think of a, a barbershop quartet, 
There you go. That's essentially doo-wop. Even the gospel versions of that was basically the background singers singing the things that the bass player would play with the drum. You know what I'm saying? Uh-huh. They would sing the music parts. Whoop, doo-wop, whoop, doo-wop. They would do the harmonies and singing the instrument parts. And that was basically doo-wop. You know, you had a lot of acapellas that didn't even use music at all. You know, you like if you ever remember Take Six. Yeah. Remember, they was like experts on, on singing all the parts. Bobby McFerrin. Mm-hmm. That's based, I mean, he take the essence of doo-wop and make it all the way into jazz. But yeah, that's what doo-wop basically was. We were singing in the barbershop. That's when we rehearsed that in Newark, New Jersey. Was it always four or five in a doo-wop group or it didn't have to be that? It didn't have to be that, but if five was basically saying it, then you got like the impressions. They went, they took it to the three. You know, you, you had Gladys Knight and the Pips, who was four, but the three background was like a group by themselves, even though they was backing her up. They were like another whole group. Did they come out of do up Gladys Knight? Yes. Oh, they, their first things would have been like, it was on Fury Records would have been like 1960. Yeah, so end of do it was still happening. Yes, that, you know, Motown just slicked it up a little bit. Mm-hmm. It was still do you know, the temps and all that, but they just slicked it up, you know, with the strings and the instrumentation. Motown took do to the next level. What was the first do Do we know? No, that would have been in the 40s. Mm-hmm. That, that, that would have been in the 40s. I mean, the ink spots. Mm-hmm. You know, Louis Jordan would have been one of my favorite of that era. That His was like doo-wop big band, like Count Basie and Duke Ellington. All Louis Jordan was like the funk band of that era. Mm-hmm. And they did a lot of doo-wop type stuff. But do but do up. I think of do up as a vocal group. I don't think of the band as part of do up. Like the band is yeah. a is a backing band, and the group are the singers. Yeah, but they kind of like did both of that. Louis Jordan kind of like did had, like we did at Parliament Funkadelic. Yeah, they had a, the singer and the the big the band part. Like um, Sunrock did do up. Most people don't know it. He did do up before he went to outer space. I didn't know that. There's a collection of Sunrise records out of Chicago where he was doing basic doo wop groups. You know, when the Dells first started. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they they were like big in '54. The Dells, oh what a night! And uh, yeah. that that stuff. They redid it in the '70s, but um, they were like one of the groups around when we was still around in the 70s that we compare ourselves to because we had both been there a long time. Let's talk about what a big doo-wop group was because now when we think of what a big group is in music, it's different today than it was then. What would be a big doo-wop group? How many people would they get to play to? What would that be like? Tell me. Okay, but your highest aspiration basically was... Um, Copacabana or the, or the or Vegas. That's yeah. all they thought about at, at that point. And you would have gotten groups like the Platters, mm-hmm. the 
flamingos, moon glows. Uh-huh. I mean, Frank and Lyman and teenagers, they they went all the way to like Michael Jackson. They got to that level international. And they yes. were a doo-wop group. They didn't even have festivals then. So it was big, it was a big club, basically. It was was as big as it got, and that was cool. We were probably ourselves in Sly Stone are probably the first ones that started playing to, you know, black bands. They started playing to the uh, arenas, you know, like the Soldiers Field and mm-hmm. things, you know, and that would have been over into the 70s. But we started in the 60s along with the Ted Nuge, Amboy Dukes, uh, Iggy Pop. Mm-hmm. We all was from Detroit with, with the same agent. So we played festivals in Ann Arbor and Toronto and places like that, you know, of the rock and roll side. You know, we were called the bad boys of Ann Arbor at one time. Funkadelic, when we put out Free Your Mind, Your Ass Will Follow, Mama, What's a Funkadelic, and Maggot Brain. Basically, when Maggot Brain came out, we played all the rock festivals. Why did you move to Detroit? Motown. I see. The thing was, was to get out there to record with the Motown sound, you know, mm-hmm. musicians. And we went out there and I started writing with one of the competitor companies, which Motown bought out later. I started writing for them and they did the Edwin Stars and, mm-hmm. you know, Dow Banks, stuff like that, and Parliaments. The Parliaments still, you know, we did first records with them and that's where we got our first hit. But that was how we got to Detroit. You moved out to to want to join Motown. Yes. Become part of that situation, which I see the same way people see hip-hop today. Mm-hmm. That's the way it was to be at Motown. I tell you what, I'm, I'm going back and forth to Detroit. You know, I go to Detroit through the week. Monday to Friday, I go back to New Jersey, and I'm working the barbershop Friday, Saturday, and wow. Sunday. And I'm wow. and I go back to Detroit, you know, to write yeah. and stuff with Motown. Amazing. I do that for a year and a half, I think. And then we get a hit record. I do the last record that I do for the Golden World. This guy's getting ready to sell the company to Motown. I do the last record for them, and I leave and go back to the barbershop. I'm there two weeks before the record comes out on the biggest station in the country, which was CKLW and WABC in New York. And I had no idea it was coming out. And and everybody started hearing on radio saying, your record is out. Unbelievable. And that was the, I want to testify which became a, a, the smash of that, you know, 67, along with Beatles, um, Sergeant Pepper, Jimi Hendrix, The Cream. The, and those was one imprinted in my brain from then on when that became a hit. And those were the records that came out with it, you know. And right after that, Sly Stone came out. Before we left Plainfield, his manager, the guy, the Dave Kaepernick, that was his manager, Told us that, you know, we were good, but he had a group called Slide the Family Stone with blah, 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 blah. And that I had to brighten up because we were too dark, you know, <laughs> in our concepts. And he was actually our manager for a minute. We was on a, a, a Stone Records 
which Dave Kaepernick managed for a minute, and then Sly broke big. We went to Detroit. We had, you know, we had that the hit single out, but um, we went separate ways for a minute. And took us years. We'll get to that later. So I want to ask you about the commuting between New Jersey and Detroit, forgetting Motown for a minute. How different was just your experience of life in those two places? Or was it the same? And how would you say they were different worlds? Well, like this, I work in a barbershop in New Jersey. So you're dealing with Newark, Harlem, and they're like the first one that was doing those processes. Not the first, but the one that, what we call elevated to where it was looking smooth and soft and natural and really fly, as opposed to it still being done and being hard and, you know, glued to your head. So that was my only way of looking at it. There was lots of what they call players in Detroit, Cleveland. They was like preoccupied with that form of lifestyle. New York, New Jersey thought we thought we was cooler with that lifestyle, same lifestyle, but just thought you was cooler in it. So I had to analyze going back and forth to, you know, the players in Detroit and uh, the players in the barbershops around New Jersey who subdued it a little bit. And um, you did to deal with, a, uh, what you call it, a deuce and a quarter being the, the desired car as opposed to um, an Eldorado or Mercedes you know what I'm saying, uh-huh. being the car of choice. But Motown was there, which made the difference. You know, everything at Motown in my head was the coolest in the world. Yes. No matter what, we just we just had to change the hairstyles. Yes. Could Motown have happened anywhere else? Or do you think that the nature of Detroit had something to do with Motown blossoming? I think it had something to do, you know, with the city in the, that whole factory car company thing you know and it's just been that place where that chicago started like that they just didn't get one place to to zone in like motown did like a lot of the records came out of chicago but they were different labels and things same thing could have happened in minneapolis when prince and all of them were together mm-hmm. it's always been how do you keep it together because industry ain't going to let you keep it together. You know, the main thing is to break it up and get whoever's big and everybody want to be big. So it's, you know, kind of easy to get the good people and give them some money and they leave before you get to a Motown guy. Motown was magic. It was like so magic. That particular band, you think of it like all the musicians, the one that played on it was unbelievable. And all the singers was like one big family. Yeah, that was like the first Motown, re- the review for all those superstars was on the same buses. That's like, I don't know. It was like college. Yeah. Everybody's sharing information back and forth. And yes, I mean, and at that particular time, which was the 60s, school was happening. College was happening. A lot of kids in college was sharing knowledge all over the planet. We have to pause for a quick break here, but then we'll be back with more from Rick Rubin and George Clinton. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% 
on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases. And 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash alongside a full ensemble cast, Audible invites you to enter The Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. We're back with Rick Rubin's conversation with George Clinton. It's interesting that your first song was Testify. Testify is a, is a word that I associate with church. Was there a uh, spiritual component for music for you from the beginning? I was around... Um... A, a barbershop where a group called the Gospel Clefts used to, they used to rehearse there. And to see the show and the vibe that they would put on was unbelievable. It was like the, the coasters in church. Wow. And that let, that always let me know that that was the root of all the music, no matter what the tone was. That was the root. So like, that vibe, you know, right from the get-go, doo-wop, was always the vibe of, you know, church. Uh, like I can remember the Staples Singers or mm-hmm. Mahalia Jackson. Mm-hmm. That stuff when, you know, waking up to breakfast to. And it sounds like hit records to this day. When I go to Texas, all the <laughs> all the bands, all the funk bands is in Texas in church. Yeah, all the best players, all the best musicians. Absolutely. That's what I'm talking about, yeah. Yeah, the best. So in the Detroit scene, how was the Motown world 
and the Detroit rock world part of the same thing? When you were there, did you feel like it was all part of one thing or did it feel like the Motown thing is really separate from like the, the Ted Nugent's and the, um, and the Iggy's? Um, when we got that Funkadelic and Testify was out, we bridged that one instantly because Motown was already like a Motown playing with those groups on shows with them, but we were immediately a Funkadelic, a psychedelic band. So it, it changed immediately. At first, well, by the time Ted Nugent and Iggy Pop, you know, MC5, yeah, it, it, you know, it was merging right there. Would everyone play at the same clubs? Like, would someone on Motown and MC5 play at the same venue? We did. We played with MC5 and all of them. And there were separate R&B venues? Oh, yeah. Except for, like, the, the Rooster Tail, you, that's where Pop and R&B played, the Fox. Mm-hmm. Pop and R&B played. Mm-hmm. You know, most of those kind of places. The theaters, everybody played there. What would you call the first funk record from anybody? Oh, my God. It would, be, it would be, have to be one of those blues things that's, you know, is in the 40s. Those are basically punk records. Mm-hmm. Most of them. I look at, uh, you know, the New Orleans stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 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 the Motown early records. James Jameson, mm-hmm. those bass lines. Incredible. That made everything funk. They just had so much strings on top that it was music for... Uh, Young America, that was the name of their, that was their theme. Their music, if you, the basic rhythm tracks was the funkiest thing that there was. That's what made us, that's who called us the Funk Brothers. They called us the Young Funk Brothers. You know, our, our backup band, mm-hmm. and that's why we named it Funkadelli. They had a New Orleans vibe on it, but Motown had its own chord changes with it. But basically everything they did, you know, was seriously funky pop nobody identified it with funk because we came along we did it basic we went to real raw funk simple lines chants and extremely you know slow what's the first time you were ever aware of james brown please please and try me those Mm -hmm. two i mean as you know they were like blues songs but you could feel the vibe in it that it was there. But when he started doing Papa Got a Brand New Bag, uh-huh. from that point on, it was something else. You know, that's when you start seeing bands pop up that imitate him. Yeah. You know, once it got to that point, it was, he was like, he was like a TikTok artist. Yeah. Every city you go to, you can find a band that could perfect his show so good that they could actually substitute us. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, I, mean yeah. I knew some band was more James Brown than James Brown. Yeah. But the work that they had to put in to get those horns, precision. I mean, you watch Maceo do it with us. You watch him do it with Prince. Fred did the same thing with the Count Basic. They all, Bootsy, I mean, came out whole style. You know, from the the funk, Funkadelic, like we were doing Funkadelic first, to the Parliament new stuff when we did Chocolate City up for the downstroke, then mothership and all of that. And it was still, he brought the horny horns, you know, then with me. And Bernie Worrell, being a classically trained keyboardist, 
was able to have them play horn parts but with that same kind of precision. So it was like we had two or three generations of styles, you know, the Jimi Hendrix, the James Brown, the Motown, and Parliament Funkadelic all at one time, you know, and that's what we was having like 10 albums out at one time in a year <laughs> with all the, of the same people. Yeah. I always wanted to know about why, why the different band names and why the different labels, how did that happen? And was it on purpose? And tell me about it. It was the only way to get everybody satisfied. Everybody wanted to be a, up front and star. So whoever got a hit, that's who we all become. We I was see. a backup band for the brides. And, you know, and it didn't matter at the time. We realized that it was hard for one act to survive after, you know, seeing, you know, Motown get to its peak. We realized we had to have them on different labels and, diff, you know, and that way you could accommodate all the new acts that was coming up behind us that we had. We had loads more. Yeah, in a, in a way, you did what, basically how the Funk Brothers was the root of all of the Motown. Motown. You did your own version of that, but instead of building a label, you had artists at all the different labels. Yeah. You know, like Wu-Tang did it right after us. Yes. And they stayed together as a group mm -hmm. and was all on their thing. That was what we were, you know, attempting to do. Had anyone done that before you? Not not that many. I'll tell you, uh, Phil Spector did. Remember, he had that Darlene Love mm -hmm. song on everybody's record. And they had all the groups, the crystals, the mm -hmm. you know, all the raw raw teens and and Ike and Tina did it a little bit. Mm -hmm. Remember that Ike and Ike and Tina? Yeah, they did it. But we just spread it out a lot further because that show them was was stars themselves as you know, as the JBs. We named them the Horny Horns, mm -hmm. and they were already their own stars, so it was easy. And Bootsy was Bootsy, so we made him into Bootzilla. We made him an instant star right from the get-go. You know, in Parliament Funk, then we had built our reputation as a psychedelic band. So it was, when the mothership happened, it was like we had a ship with all these acts on there. The backup girls would become the Parlettes and the Brides. Mm -hmm. Was there a particular inspiration for going psychedelic or was it more the whole movement or were there any like key artists who were like we need to do something more like this we had a, a friend that worked with us jimmy miller mm -hmm. he was the producer of the rolling stones eventually mm -hmm. we used to practice our doo-wop thing and we recorded some records with him and a guy named jimmy fallon mm -hmm. and just as we got our first record together, we gave it to new to Brunswick Records. They released the, the demo we gave on Jackie Wilson. He went on to do a group called Spencer Davis, Give Me Some uh -huh. Lovin'. He went on to do Traffic, uh -huh. Stevie Winwood. Now, this was like my partner. We wrote together. And I saw what they had did with, with Spencer Davis you know, give me some loving and I'm a man. Uh -huh. I realized that's where it was going, that, that, you know, rock and roll European type of thing. Then Jimmy's records came out, 
you know, we knew it was Jimmy Jamie and the Flames, you know, with King Curtis, and you know, you knew him as a guitar player that did tricks uh-huh. and play. He came out with that. Are you experienced? That one let me know we had to do something like that. And the the Eddie was about fifteen years old, and he was experimenting with the guitar. We just he could play blues to death, so it was easy for him to get the gadgets and do it. Were you ever aware of uh, Arthur Lee and Love at any point? Yep. That was Slide's Heroes. Really? Yeah, that was his heroes. The Love family? Yeah. Yeah, that was Sly. He put me on to them. What's the first time you got to meet and see Sly? The first time, like I told you, the manager, Dave Kaepernick, was his manager and our manager. Uh He invited me to see Sly in the East Village. And how was it? It was through that place away. <laughs> Plus of all, you know, at that time, you know, you're tripping your ass off. You know, he played there and told that place down. And I'm trying to think he played another club that same weekend. And it was unbelievable. He told that place up. <laughs> that sounds great. I mean, that's, I think he had, what was it, Dance to the Music out. That was, yeah. the, you know, and that simple song, when that came out, it was all over. For all the different scenes that you've seen, so you've, you've witnessed the doo-wop scene, you witnessed the birth of the funk scene, you've witnessed the birth of G-Funk, you've witnessed the birth of hip-hop before that. Would you say that there's a similarity between these things that happen, or is each one of them really different? It's a similarity. It's a similarity. You know, it gets um, to that point where it peaks, and it's people, somebody starts changing it, and you don't think it's the music at first, but then all of a sudden it takes over, becomes the new music, mm-hmm. and it works. It becomes the thing, and a new one comes along. Whenever I hear something like, ball, 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 you know, that was a doo-wop thing. Yeah. And when you hear people complain about, what, that ain't music? What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> and then, then you get to a few years later, <laughs> it's the same thing. Yeah. It all gets to a point of sophistication that the kids have to take over again and bring it back to elementary so you can go somewhere else. You know, it gets to that peak and you, everybody gets sophisticated and get jazzy or whatever the avant-garde thing is. And then some kids will come along and do something so dumb, get, they get on your nerve, but it becomes the new shit that you, yeah. if you want to stay around, you better pick them on how they doing. It makes it fun again. It's like it gets fun again. It makes it fun again. You know, whenever I hear somebody that, like I say, get on my nerve for whatever reason, if it get on it good enough, I know it's for the good. I know I need to pay attention. Did you ever get into Go-Go, DC Go-Go? My God, yeah. I can give a good song. One of the first things, Chuck Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers, Mm -hmm. one of the first things they did was, I don't care about the cold, baby, when you're hot. You're too much when yeah. you're hot, you're hot. That was from one of our songs called Up for the Downstroke. Yeah, I know that record. 
I used to DJ that record all the time. That was the that was the birth of their version of of Go Go. Then they used to vamp on that part, and um, our drummer Tiki Fuller used to play with them. Wow. Now, like I said, it was it was the soul soul searchers, you know, at that time, and they did that groove with everything after that. Yeah. They did everything with that beat after that worked so thoroughly. They could do. We used to do the same thing with the group called Mama with the Funk. Whoa, hey, whoa, ah. We did that for the entire show, Great. like during the early 70s. All our songs would be in that beat, and we just changed the melody or the lyrics and the beat or the, or the lick, but the pocket would stay the same. We did that, and it sounded like we did one song all night with different themes in it. It sounds great though, because yeah. it, it creates this like hypnosis. You, you get the yeah. the pocket just keeps getting deeper and deeper, and it, it and turns it, into yeah. something else. You know, even without changing, it turns into something else. Without changing, well, James Brown could do that forever. Yes, and, but the, one of the best was Fela Kuta. You see, Fela from Nigeria. Mm -hmm. They could play in the morning to the evening. <laughs> and it'd be that same pulse all day. But, the, you know, I know there was something that was changing, but it was always that groove. Yeah, instead of one nation under groove, it's one groove over the nation, really. <laughs> one groove over the, over the planet now. <laughs> we have to take another quick break, and then we'll be back with more from George Clinton. As listeners to this show, you probably consider yourself pretty smart. But how smart is your wallet? When you're looking to upgrade your wallet, it's time to turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds has the financial smarts to help you find the right financial products for you. Before NerdWallet, you might have paid for vacations with whatever was in your wallet. But you could have been missing out on miles you didn't even know you were leaving on the table. Now you can get a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, temp to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, snag a job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. 
How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. We're back with the rest of Rick Rubin's conversation with the legend George Clinton. Yeah, it's amazing the power of a groove. I think that's, for me, that's the thing that, that separates funk from the music that came before it, is that the music that came before it relied on the melody, relied yeah. on the words. But once, once we got to the groove being the dominant element of the music, where it didn't even matter if, the, if it was a song on top. Because, I mean, for a lot of James Brown songs, they're interchangeable. It's just the groove. Yeah. Yeah, but James, James could switch from one groove to the other one so precise that you forgot about the first groove instantly. Yeah. Now, I know they can change tempos and things and end one and start another one without a seam in it, but a complete different feel. It was almost like a drum machine. Yeah. Matter of fact, the drum machine enhanced the grooves a lot once um, once they was able to, to lock in on the clock with mm-hmm. the drum machine, you could groove your ass up because you knew that wasn't going to change. Yeah. And you could just write everything around it, which is, uh, had a lot to do with a lot of what hip-hop was doing. Mm-hmm. Once they was able to do that lock in, those samples or those beats and you know where they was going to stay but the beats per minute and all of that you could just do any kind of pocket over top of that and if you got a good you know rhythm in your voice you know like somebody like say rock him i mean he was the smoothest mama i know against the beats that they that he they lock into mm-hmm. did you ever get to meet james oh yeah yeah what was he like I never got to meet him. It was funny. When I first met the Chili Peppers, James, myself, Madonna, we was on a pound together for Silverman. His, um, new Music Seminar. New Music Seminar, right. And that's where I met the Chili Peppers. At. James and I was on the panel together, and I tried to be cocky and you know say something funny. So I said, James Brown, give me 18 splits. <laughs> That mother got up and did fucking 18 splits. Wow. And then said, George Clinton, give me two. <laughs> I got one and I'm I did one and couldn't get up off my nuts. <laughs> and then, that, was, matter of fact, that was the first time that, you know, 
Flea and Anthony and them uh, asked me would I do a record with them. Was that a fun experience for you working with those guys? Oh my God, that was fun. You know, they came out to the farm and they were like really kids. You know, and I forgot what it was like to be really kids. <laughs> and at the time, you know, I guess they had their little fan club. People knew them by then already. And so I had to get them in town for the weekend and let them out for the weekend, do our recording and let them out. And then they go party in Detroit. <laughs> That's great. But we had lots of fun. I think it was it Flea and I went to see Aretha. Wow. You know, a friend of mine took us in his white roses, a pimp player. Wow. <laughs> and they, they were just having the fun of their life and um, took us, took them to meet Aretha and her sister at ball. And was it a concert or was it more like a regular thing where she would just get up sometimes? Oh, no, no, this was a, this was a concert because she was really big and hot at that time. As a matter of fact, her and Annie Lennox did a record during that same period of sisters doing it for themselves or something. Mm. Yeah, they did that record. Matter of fact, in the same studio at the same time we were there. There was some crossover between musicians between James's band and your band. How did that? How did that, those things come about? Um, Bootsy, Bootsy, came, he had been with James and. Um, they was called the house guests when we ran into him. And that was the rhythm section, him and his brother in the rhythm section. And I guess they just left James about six months or so. And they, uh, this girl, Malia Franklin said, this guy Bootsy, he looked like a Funkadelic. And so she brought him around and we met. And um, I said, damn, he looked, definitely looked like a Funkadelic. <laughs> and then we played a show and we came around and you know, hung out. And then we just got together and did a couple of that Up For The Downstroke album. We did some songs for that. And by the next time we got ready to do the next record, he said Macy and, and Fred, Macy O and Fred had left. And so he called them in to do the session. They all had left James by the time. I see. That um that came around. There was never there wasn't no thing between me and James about that. A lot of people thought that there was some words or something. No, we actually recorded together, him, Bootsy, myself, and Gary Cooper afterwards, you know, after that um, came out on the family series. But yeah, no, we, we never had any, <laughs> he's a funny dude, but he was, he was Mr. Brown. Did, did you call him Mr. Brown? No, I, mean, I called him James. I, okay. He was kind of scared of me. He thought I was crazy. <laughs> Mitchell told him, George, he think you're crazy. Scared of you, say, don't let him off the hook, man. <laughs> so I always, always play crazy around him, you That's know. Great. Like a, Sly would wear him out, though. Sly would pick, you know, would pick at him, you know, just for the <laughs> hell of it. You know, because I think Roger and Bootsy was calling him Mr. Brown. And, and Sly would be like, you ain't calling him no Mr. Brown. He let you call you Mr. Brown. He gonna call you Mr. Brown. He gonna call so me Mr. Funny. Sly. <laughs> oh, he, he was a clown. That's so funny. I'm gonna tell you a funny story. This was probably, I don't know, I'm gonna say 
18 or so years ago, a friend of mine came to my house and he said, I want to show you this new thing. And it was YouTube. I'd never heard of YouTube. It was just in its infancy. And he said, I want to show you this thing. And then the first video he showed me was Funkadelic from, it seemed like even older than the thing that I said with the hats. Like it was in a, like a local TV station, maybe in Detroit. Cleveland. Cleveland. It was unbelievable. And that was my introduction to YouTube was that video. And it made me love YouTube. Like it was, it wasn't that YouTube was great. It was that I got to see this funkadelic thing that I didn't, never knew existed. Yeah. Is that the one I was crawling around on the floor? Yeah. 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 That was in Boston. That's um, brothers or something like that. But the the other one is just like that is upbeat in um, Cleveland, Ohio. It looked like it was on a TV set. But we was playing live. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was incredible. Yeah. Yeah, that was that was we actually did those kind of shows live on on regular TVs wow. because you know it's psychedelic. You could actually get away with that, you know. And then there's another video that they came that came out years later. It was of Cosmic Slop. We was in Central Park running through the tunnels in, in the city yeah. and all this that was like we were tripping our ass off, and and that thing never came out to years later. To you know, years after that record was out, but it's one of the first things you see on as Funkadelic when you look up Funkadelic on YouTube now. Has it always been fun making music for you? Oh yeah, I mean even now, dealing with my grandkids and figuring out what, how they do the the new things and being a part of that with. Oh yeah, that's the fun part of it. Trying to come up with something different and being be involved. How did the idea for changing the song structures? Because like coming from doo-wop, song structures were more traditional. And then when when you moved into funk, it broke free. Tell me about that. Well, that was it. You know, coming from all those songwriting days of the fifties, you know, you had to write a structured song. Two verses of bridge and another version out. That started changing when it started becoming having your own band, especially if you were around when Jimmy was playing or Grateful Dead or all those groups were just rock and roll into the you tripping out, going you wake up and go to sleep with music playing and wake up with the same song playing. Mm-hmm. That was the whole thing of the rock and roll groove. And then when we got Back into funk from the James Brown point, you know, on the one, then that was back into the, you know, the long pockets. And Boosie had a lot of changes in the songs that I would take out, yeah. you know, after we recorded, because he, he liked a lot of breaks, you know. But that pocket, I fell in love with. And then that just became the thing, just trying to make it, loop by itself, you know, get into a loop. And then, like I say, when the hip hop came in, could only focus on the one, you know, everything they sampled was, you know, one, two, three, you know, even time and no beat breaks and stuff. That made you really lock into the one in which, you know, by the time we did something like Atomic Dog, we could go crazy around the track, even though it was backwards. 
-hmm. We can still, it's still that groove. That's like one of the hardest grooves that we have. You know, it's the Atomic Dog. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, we just did a, another version called the Q-Dog version of Atomic Dog. It's phenomenal. Wait till you see this thing. I can't wait. Video is crazy. In some ways, also, disco was another movement that really unified the pocket. It was the whole movement was yeah. about the pocket, the same pocket, danceable pocket. Again, that's when it, like a, that like a drum machine came in mm -hmm. and and locked it. Mm -hmm. well, you know, once it, that was the, you know the, all the electronic music like that came in with a pocket after that. You know, in the like disco, I used to like uh, remember Fly Robin Fly, yeah, the silver, silver conventions. Mm -hmm. That stuff like blew me away. Yeah, I feel love, Donna Summer. Donna Summer, I mean. You know, we was with Neil at that time. So we had a thing going with, uh, with Neil, Donna Summers, Kiss, and Ourselves. Wow. You know, that was his new label. That's when he had just started his new label. You know, and I had been knowing him since his Buddha days. So we knew we had the thing captured with him because he had the promotion and we had a spaceship and we had that pocket. Talk about how important radio was back then. Well, it was every, radio was everything. You know, you had to go from the R&B and to crossover into, we were lucky if you was in Detroit, there had been a good relationship between, you know, a lot of R&B records and this station CKLW, which was in Windsor. You know, if you got a good record in Detroit, you could get a Windsor and you had a good shot to get half of the country. Wow. So that's what Motown was doing. Every time they put a record out and they got it going, they get it on CKLW and, and they was on the charts all over the country. We had a good re a relationship with stations myself because I went to the station with the distributor. Every time he took a record to to the radio station, I would go as a you know guest artist and talk to the DJ. And so I had a pretty good relation with them. So by the time we got back with Neil, what I want to say is when he come up with this label called Casablanca, we signed with him, Donna signed with him, and Kiss, we all signed at the same time. And the first time he put out Donna's and Kiss, it didn't work at first. But then we put out uh, Chocolate City and Mothership, it worked. And then Donna's worked. Then Kiss, the fan club thing started working. You know, and the label was phenomenal. They're doing a movie of that right now, and Wiz Khalif is playing myself. Oh, great. That'll be great. My grandkids are in the movie. My kids are in the movie. They're playing Parliament Funkadelic. So cool. I can't wait to check that out. Yes, yeah, next month. How did the concept for the mothership come? What do you remember about that? Pink Floyd. You know, I'd, I'd watch them, you know, become so big with their production of their show, uh -huh. you know, and how long they, they was on the charts forever, <laughs> you know, and I wanted to do something like that because Friends of Ours was in, remember the play Hair? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Friends of Ours was in the play, so I realized that we had to be more than a group. We had to be like a Broadway play or a big production or something to elevate past the concept of being 
a band or a group. And so I said I wanted to get a prop that was bigger than than anything anybody had done. You know, mm-hmm. Broadway was the, the place where they found most of the props at. So we got a guy, Jules Fisher, off of Broadway that was doing Broadway plays to do, build the mothership. And that's after I went to Neil. Knowing Neil was a promotion and promotion yeah. free. Yeah. And, and, you know, and we had a hit record already. The mothership was a hit record. And we knew that. And we said, you get me a spaceship, I'll be able to bring the next two or three albums, you know, with the promotion of the spaceship. You know, it ain't gonna last just one album. Yeah. And he knew he knew what I was saying, and he got hooked me up with a bank, got me a collateral loan, and we got the the spaceship. And all the the costuming was the, the expensive part of it. Those leather costumes we yeah. bought was was Sunra inspirational at all, or no? Oh yeah, definitely he was inspirational in the the concept, but I was into Star Trek already. I was a Star Trek freak for days. So it was about that. And then to, to do the play, I knew it had to have a theme behind it. So the theme was to travel, bring the funk to the planet, you know. Great. And Sun Ra was, was doing that. A lot of jazz musicians was doing that, you know, intergalactic concept. And tell me about um, when did you first meet Bambata? Wow, you know he had to be he had to be about fourteen, something like that. And then that would have been like seventy seven, seventy six. Wow, something like that. And I, I just know by the time we got the album out, Uncle Jam. If you look on the back of Uncle Jam's album, uh-huh. we have the names of our fans on there. You know, because we, we, we had a fan club for each city. And Africa Bilbao is an A, B. His name is first on New York. Amazing. Years later, when he started, when he started putting out music, you know, we always connected, like, through the fan club thing already. I didn't know what the electronic or the hip hop thing they was doing yet. I was just getting familiar with it. You know, it was like part electronic, part rap, part hip hop. I didn't know what they were calling it yet. Yeah. But yeah, we we stayed in touch. Even when they they got the Zulu Nation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the Soul Sonic Force was very much inspired by by the mothership. Very much. Yeah. They looked yeah. like they could have been in the band in your band. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, yeah. yeah. Isn't it amazing how, like, you're a fan of something and it inspires you and then you make something new and then when the new thing comes out, people think it's this new thing. There's never been anything like it. But all of the roots, like in all the things you've done, the roots of the things that are in it from before, whether it be Pink Floyd, which I never would have guessed in a million years, or Sun Ra, which I would have guessed because space is the place. (laughs) It's just amazing how... Through our love of these things, we make something new. Now, I'll tell you something else. You know, I've been doing painting lately, you know, fine art painting. Didn't know. We're going to be at the the Met with Lon Horsley. So check her out. She's a new artist. Her theme is on the metaphor of the funk. You know, she's the pyramids with trumpet-related noses. It's going to be at the Met in 
and great. Let's check it out. I definitely will. Beautiful. Cool, man. Well, it's a pleasure talking to you as always. Thanks, man. Take care. I love you. I'll see you soon. See you soon, man. Thanks again to the one and only George Clinton for hopping on Zoom with Rick. You can hear all of our favorite Parliament Funkadelic and P-Funk adjacent songs on the playlist at BrokenRecordPodcast.com. You can subscribe to our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash BrokenRecordPodcast, where you can find all of our new episodes. You can follow us on Twitter at BrokenRecord. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Ben Tolliday, and Eric Sandler. Our editor is Sophie Crane. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries. If you love this show and others from Pushkin, consider subscribing to Pushkin Plus. Pushkin Plus is a podcast subscription that offers bonus content and uninterrupted ad-free listening for $4.99 a month. Look for Pushkin Plus on Apple Podcast subscriptions. And if you like the show, please remember to share, rate, and review us on your podcast app. Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richman. Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.